This is the Happy Rant Sports Podcast, in which Ted Cluck and Barnabas Piper rant about old sports, new sports, sports books, sports movies, and anything else related to sports that they feel like. Enjoy. Hey, welcome to the Happy Rant Sports Podcast. I am Ted Cluck, joined, as always, in studio by my good friend and fellow sports fan, Barnabas Piper. And Pipe... It is Saturday afternoon, about 3 o'clock. Uh, we have just watched Ohio State shellac Michigan. And uh, I think we're both feeling a little down about it. Not because we, we care so much about Michigan football. I know you don't, and, and I really don't either. But uh, I think just the lack of a good game. And if I have any expectations at all as a fan, it's just that I want to be... I want to be thrilled by something. I want to be delighted. Like, I want to see something new or something interesting. And... I'll tell you, man. Like, even if it's an ugly game, like a game that keeps my attention until the end, yeah. you're like, all right, well, some, somebody's got to win Somebody's got to so, win it. Somebody's you know. got to do something. But, man, those those games have been few and far between this season, Pipe. And uh, I don't know. I, I think – did you watch the – this is a little digression already, but did you watch the Rams-Chiefs Monday Night Football game? I didn't get a chance to, but by all accounts, it was just that kind of game and also, I mean, just – what was it? Fifty four, fifty one, final. Yeah, score? I mean, it was it was the ushering I mean, it was an in absolute of track show. Yeah, it it was the ushering in of Big Twelve football in the NFL, and yeah, in in that but, it was bittersweet. I mean, it was, but like, didn't the Rams have two or three of their touchdowns set up by great defensive they plays? Did, Those man. like there strip still, sacks and forced fumbles, things like yeah, that. Yeah, there was still good defense played in the game at times, so it wasn't like fully a Big Twelve game, but but yeah, like I, I feel like the the sort of viewing experience that I that I'm looking for as a fan is a little bit few and far between this year. But, um, you know, the, the great thing about sports is that there's always more games, you know, there's always more games coming up to watch and, um, and hopefully one of those games will deliver it. Now you're, you're not a big college football fan. Are you pipe? I'm not, you know, we're getting to the time in the year when I pay a little bit more attention just cause yeah. you know, the, they're about they'll they'll pick the teams for for the playoffs. It's conference championships, et cetera. But I just like, you know, it's basically, College football is preparation for pro football. So I yeah. just want to know who's going to be in the NFL draft in a few months. Dude, exactly. And, and maybe what uh, what quarterbacks are going to be in the NFL draft in a few months. Um, not to not to hit too close to home on that pipe. But I, I, I mean, I, I can't help but notice that the Vikings have already lost more games with their new quarterback than they did with their supposedly mediocre quarterback last year. And, um, you know... It, full disclosure there's a little bit of of satisfaction in that for me but um <laughs> a little bit of smugness in your voice I can like I, yeah i really i really hate to be a smug guy but uh but sometimes what, and he, so here's the thing yeah. i i i think i predicted that the vikings were going to win fewer games this year you just because last totally year was an ultimate sort of catch lightning in a bottle yeah. everyone stayed healthy etc um and it's the way they've lost the games that has that has been yeah really frustrating yeah. because just like dumb turnovers and in the occasional play call that you're just like that that didn't make any sense yeah. things were going so well and then you did you tried a new thing instead of doing the things that were working yeah you know, I hate it when coaches outsmart themselves. Dude, right? So yeah, yeah. I haven't I haven't been real thrilled with sort of the consistency and. I don't know. They just they, they've just been sort of like a B minus football team in terms of execution, and that's irritating. Yeah, no, it totally is. And and I have to again be honest in saying that um, because of the sort of emotional situation that I'm that I'm not at liberty to talk about on the program. I I haven't watched hardly any Vikings games this season, so I've just caught highlights and recaps. And uh, and and yeah, it seems to me that. You guys have a Ferrari in the backfield that you're not using at all. And I don't know if that's a function of like just abysmal run blocking or you go too quickly away from Dalvin Cook, but um it's been curious to me just Well he he had a hamstring injury for you know, he played he played like one and a half games yeah. and then he basically was was more or less shelved for about five games. Yeah. Four or five games. During which and, point Latavius Murray had... filled in he he did Latavius Murray things. Yeah, I mean he will yeah. he will always get you what's blocked and and not much more. But you know he's an he's an adequate he's, guy. He's an overpaid second running back sure. who's a, also a high quality second running back. Yep. But yeah, the their offensive line is the is the to use a brutal cliche the Achilles heel of the team. Yeah. 
and it and and everybody knew it going into the year. Yeah. And they haven't drafted. I'm trying to remember the last first round offensive lineman they drafted. Dude, probably. I think it was Matt. Yeah, Khalil. I was going to say, don't you have a Khalil on your offensive line and, and not the good one? No, Al, yeah. he's he's playing with his brother in Carolina now. Okay, but, I mean that that's like eight years ago. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while. So you you should you should draft a top three round offensive lineman probably every. Year. I agree. Yeah, I agree. In the NFL, and you should probably draft one in the first round every other year. Dude, speaking <laughs> or of something, speaking of offensive line play, have you seen like the the clips that are going viral of Quentin Nelson just? Killing people as a, as an offensive guard for yeah, the Colts while, while screaming like a banshee. Yeah. I love dude. It. I love it that just, guy it, so I, much. I giggled. I giggled like a little tiny schoolgirl the first time I saw that Same. because it just it was so he was just so mean and he was screaming and he's, he's you look at that and you go that's the epitome of an offensive lineman. That's right. That is everything you wanted an offensive lineman right there. Exactly, man. Exactly. Football is the best because of stuff like that, man. But. Piper, I want to get back to Achilles' heels, and I want to talk about uh, a movie that I thought uh, Rocky Five excluded was the Achilles' heel of the Rocky franchise, and that's Creed Two. So I saw Creed Two on opening weekend. I saw it with my son and with my nephew. Uh, expectations were sky high, sort of like the the Vikings fan base for this season. Um, so really high expectations for Creed Two, and I thought it was a bad movie. And it, it's funny, like there's no. Our culture has no gear for anything in the middle of it was awesome or it was total garbage. And I didn't think it was total garbage, but it was definitely far from awesome. I just think it was a bad movie. And, you know, it's, it's funny. The cultural conversation that we're in seems to preclude anyone from saying that anything that Michael B. Jordan does is bad. Um, we're just not... We're not really in the headspace where we're saying that just yet, but and he was amazing in the movie. Like I thought he was great. I thought Tessa Thompson was great. Uh, I just thought Creed Two was a bad movie, uh, and I know you it saw was, it last night. So I want your thoughts on it. I, I'm in absolute and utter agreement with you uh, in terms of their their respective performances, yeah. but also like the movie just being just disappointing. It it felt like a dot to dot emotional experience. Yes, I totally like, agree. Cue the music to tell you exactly how you should feel. Cue the one-liner that is supposed to motivate you. I mean, it was like it was like motivational Mad Libs throughout the movie. Dude, it totally was. Espe- especially with Sylvester Stallone. Uh, you know, he just who he's not a good actor, dude. No, he which isn't. means that he he has to be inserted into a movie very judiciously yep, yep. to to work. And and in Creed. It was like pitch perfect. It was it was fantastic. Creed Stallone was unbelievable, and that was the and we've talked about this. That was like the the wheelhouse that he needed to stay in. So let's let's talk about Stallone for a minute. Um, I thought Stallone regressed from like the awesome old manness that he had embraced in Creed, and he went back to looking kind of tan and waxen and like a very old man who was trying really hard to look less old. Uh, do you do you agree or disagree with that? Yeah, he he looked like he looked like former bodybuilder yeah. instead of like washed up heavyweight who now runs a small Italian restaurant who, for kicks and also who's seventy, you know? Yeah, like, um, yeah. There was there you you could you could see the Botox in this. Oh, one. totally. Yeah, you could you could see the little ripples of Botox like right below his skin. Now, I I agree with you on the the like paint by number emotional thing where like none of the emotion was earned. Whereas I feel like in Creed, like every emotional response that you had, like they really earned it. Um, but in Creed 2, every Stallone line I thought in Creed 2 had like a, like a fortune cookie wisdom lifetime movie quality about it. Um, in which it, it all felt inauthentic and forced. And it was almost like everything that came out of his mouth was like a, yeah, this pithy like motivational thing. Yeah, it was so bad. And the, the scenes where that was the worst were when you needed it to be the best. Yeah. Yeah. And it was the scenes where, like, the emotion is hanging in the balance. You know, you've got, you've got, spoiler alert, Creed deciding whether or not he wants Rocky to, to coach him or train him for this, yeah, this yeah. fight. And, and that scene was just, it was just, it was just flat. Yeah. It was basically like a temper tantrum by one guy and the other guy being like, all right, I'll miss you. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. and that was it. And then, and then the scenes when, again, spoiler alert, Rocky manages the next fight. Yeah. 
and he's in his corner and he's just like, this comes down to who wants it more. Oh, dude, yeah. I'm like, what? I mean, what, what? This isn't junior high. Right. That's, that's right. the line for like, that's like the overweight middle-aged dad coaching 12-year-olds trying to get them to try harder. Exactly. That's bad coaching it is was, what that is. Like, it was, yeah, and... Yeah, also, that doesn't work when you're fighting a behemoth who kills people. So yeah. uh, it's not about who wants it more. It's about can you not die? Yeah, exactly. Dude, so let's talk about the be- the, be- the behemoths who kill people in this movie. So I thought Ivan Drago, um, who is the villain from Rocky Four, if you're familiar with the, the Rocky franchise, I thought Drago was actually the most sympathetic and interesting character in the whole movie. Um, which which removed and ruined a fundamental element from the success of any Rocky movie, which is that you have to hate the opponent. Um, Drago was totally sympathetic uh, because his wife, Brigitte Nielsen, left him high and dry after he lost to Rocky in 1985 uh, on the night that Rocky ended the Cold War. Uh, so apparently Brigitte Nielsen left uh, Drago and his son high and dry, um, such that, like, you ended up feeling really sorry for them in, in Creed too. Did did you have this experience? Like, yeah. did you feel like things for them that you probably shouldn't have been feeling? Yeah, I mean, the most sympathetic. I mean, it was either him or Victor. Yeah, like, to me, Victor Drago. So the son was the most sympathetic because like Ivan Drago had his moment of glory right. and lost it completely unjustified because he lost a fight. Right, right, you know, right. that should be that. That's an aspect of of any athlete's career. Right, but. Because it was also like the fall of the USSR, it, they blamed him more or less. Exactly. His son lost a mom, lost a home, and then his dad continues to pile that crap on him throughout the entire movie until like the last few scenes when he, it's like he realizes he's about to lose his son too. Yeah, yeah. And then and then he becomes a father, and you know, there's that sort of just glimpse at the end when they're running together. Yeah, which is. A, a really different thing but again it was sort of ham-handed how they did it was it. yeah for sure but did okay so speaking of ivan and victor drago did you catch in the first fight mm-hmm. max kellerman who by the way should never be allowed anywhere near a movie he was the most annoying dude thank you thank you thing. for saying that man my my wife hates max kellerman and i'm not sure why um but she just has this long-standing beef with max kellerman because of all the boxing i used to watch like years ago when i was i was doing boxing writing and she just didn't like him she thought he was he was smug and arrogant but but in the film kellerman acted as sort of like like the chorus like if this was a shakespeare play kellerman would be the chorus in that he's providing all this like ham-fisted exposition it was terrible it was just terrible when it just i mean just to be very trite, his voice makes me want to stab my ears with a pencil. Yeah. It's just the worst voice. <laughs> um, but in the very first fight, he got the name wrong. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that. He dude. said, yeah, he, he said, said, he said I, you know, he's like, Ivan Drago out here throwing haymakers. And I was yeah. like, that was 30 years ago. <laughs> dude, right. And I'm like, is that just like an editing gaffe in the in the movie? Or did, did they leave that in there for some kind of intentional reason? I think it was an edit. I think they just, I think they just made a mistake. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, it, they just they just missed it, which the whole movie felt like an editing gaffe to me because yeah. the the performances by the two, the the non Rocky leads uh-huh. uh, were really strong. Yeah, I agree. So the, the Dragos, the Creeds, yep. strong yep. Rocky, not strong, but I don't put that on him because we all know exactly who Sylvester Stallone is. Yeah. And so that's a screenwriting and directorial Thing. Yeah, and this one didn't have Ryan Coogler involved in it. Yeah, uh, well, I think he was an executive producer, but I think he was heavily involved in uh, Black Panther when this movie yeah, was being yeah. made, so or being shot, and so it just didn't have any sort of. There was no soft touch right. at any point. Right, no subtlety. And it, yeah, it suffered from it. Let's say no, it definitely did. Yeah, the script was a mess, man. The whole thing was like twenty minutes too long. You, you know what it felt like? It felt like. Like a Clippers game in the early 2000s when, like, they had all those great players, <laughs> but they always got eliminated from the playoffs with, like, a month left to go in the season. And, you know, it's like they still have to go out and play the games. Um, You're like, man, Quentin Richardson hit six threes while wearing the awesome headband, and Darius Miles was everywhere and still just not that And great they still lost game. by 12, and, like, nobody's heart was in it. And, uh, and that's what this felt like. This felt like a movie that you had to make, but, like, nobody really believed in it. Like, I envisioned... Michael B. Jordan getting two thirds of the way through, like shooting Creed two and going, yeah, this is going to be hot garbage. You know, like I think he knew in his heart of hearts that 
he had made a bad movie. So, so this begs the question. I want to, I want to run this by you, um, because I want to compare it to, to what happened in our theater. So our theater was pretty full. And at the end of the movie, you know, the, the last fight happened, the credits came up and there were a couple of beats where everybody just sat there and then somebody started clapping tepidly. And then a few other people clapped tepidly because I think the cultural expectation is that you clap at the end of a Rocky movie. Um, but no, even that nobody's heart was in it. You know, again, it was like the 2001 Clippers in terms of the clapping. (laughs) Right. And it was just a funny moment where it's like everybody in the theater wanted to feel a certain way about the movie, but we were just trying to kind of convince each other that we felt that way. Um, did anything happen in your theater after the movie? Not after, although in the last fight scene, there was a few like audible cheers, you know, And and the last fight, I, I will say they shot the fight scenes fair, pretty well. Yeah. You know, sports they've gotten good at shooting sports movies, they have. and and also to actors' credits, they have gotten a lot better at sort of fully investing in being an athlete. Right. You know, so Michael B. Jordan, for example, did an, an excessive amount of training, yeah. both physically and as a boxer, to be able to pull. Oh, it dude, off he looked well, incredible. Which makes a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. And. Uh, but so there, so there was some audible cheers, you know, with, you know, the the when he when he almost doesn't make it up on the ten count and the knockdowns and et cetera. But, but yeah, no clapping afterwards. It got done, and it was just sort of like you know the drone of like, all right, well, time to go home. It's nine forty five exactly, and and it was just that was it. It just it was very flat. Yeah, yeah, very very flat for sure. So, do you think this is the end of the franchise? Um, and if so, are you okay with that? I, well, to answer the second half of the question first, I don't have nearly the emotional investment in the Rocky franchise that some people do, um, you know, seen them, but I I think you almost have to be part of a community of people who are invested in Rocky or like half people you share this with where it's a, it's a bonding experience for that to be deeply rooted. Yeah. And I think I've watched all but one of them by myself. So oh, wow. Well, I mean, That's not the Creed movies, but like I just they were just like, oh, I'll watch it on Netflix or whatever. Yeah. And so, um, and also I wasn't really watching them when they were being released. Dude, see, I think it was always it was kind of way out. I think you had the the unfortunate like chronology of Rocky really started to suck kind of right or, right as you were entering into like movie watching age. So, you know, by the time you were old enough to watch movies, especially growing up in the Piper household, like Rocky's one through five had already been made. So like 30. Yeah, 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 30. So like four years ago. Yeah. But um, most of the Rockies, you know, all the good ones had already been made. Rocky five was garbage. Um, But yeah, when when those movies were popping like in real time, I was seeing them in real time. And then Rocky four became like the the VHS tape that you popped in whenever you had like a sleepover with dudes, like in middle school. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there were a couple of go-to movies. That was, that was one of them. So I probably viewed Rocky four like 50 and times in my childhood. I, I'll also say when I watched the first Rocky, I think, I think I didn't watch it till I was in college. Yeah. So what early 2000s, yeah. which is way after it came out. Yeah. I didn't know what I was watching. Yeah. I thought it was a boxing movie because I was familiar with the Rocky franchise at that point, And it had become sort of a, heavyweight boxing franchise yeah rocky like the first rocky is not a boxing it's movie. not man the first rocky it's is a, so it's, good it's, by it's the a way. it's a well i i it i it is mm. unless you're expecting to watch a boxing movie yeah that's true there's only like 10 minutes of boxing in it you know <laughs> and, and i was like there's nothing happening yeah. it's a bunch of weird characters it's very dark it's slow dude it has the it's, old movie pacing yeah it has it has yeah. old-timey movie pacing where it's really slow and and so i hated it yeah. And yeah. which I hated it in in the way that an ignorant movie viewer hates, which oh, is sure. I I hated it for what it wasn't. Yeah. Yep. Uh instead of instead of appreciating it for what it was. Yep. No, I get that, man. I get that. And I've been there a lot, but but yeah, really, I mean, the the first Rocky, phenomenal film. Um, they probably got progressively worse after that. And even even Rocky Four, for being such a cultural you know, kind of object. It was hot garbage. I mean, it's a, it's a really bad movie. Like if you watch Rocky four, it's all of like 92 minutes long and like 70 minutes of that is montage. Um, it's really, really bad, but, uh, but it's a fun movie to watch that's, when you, that's kind of what Creed two felt like. Yeah. yeah. It, it felt like it was like one liner, slow motion. Yeah. Montage. Yeah. 
you know, and the music they used was not, I mean, no, there was nothing subtle about this movie. Yeah. Nothing yeah. remotely subtle. It was very, very in your face. Uh, I, I doubt this is the end. Yeah. I, because if they can rope like Coogler back in, although I don't really know where they go from here unless. Yeah. Like who does he find? Unless there's like a, is there like a Creed three where the, their child grows up to be like Layla Ali or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're gonna have to wait like fifteen years for that that kid to grow up and become a fighter. But uh Rocky will still be looking waxen and tan and like an ex bodybuilder at age, you know, hundred and four. Um yeah, I don't know, man. I, I think I'm okay with this being the end of it. I really am. And you know, as someone who like grew up with the Rocky franchise and and who really rides with those movies, like I imagine like I, I hate Star Wars movies, like I'm just not interested, but the people who are really passionate about it like I'm that passionate about the Rocky movies and um, I'm okay with this being the last one. Like I would rather see them be done than make another bad one like this Um, because it's a, it's a matter of expectations. You know, it's like being a passionate fan of a team and then going out and seeing that team suck. Um, You know, you feel let down, you feel, you know, like you wasted your time or your money or whatever. So I'd rather see them like just shut it down. This isn't like an embarrassing one to end on. Like it wasn't just a disaster. It was just not good. And um, well, you know. especially when paired with the first Creed, which was a which was a really good movie. So I mean, good. they so so they good. did after what what was it was was Rocky Five called Rocky Five or was it called Rocky Balboa? Dude, so Rocky Five was called Rocky Five, and Rocky okay. Six was called Rocky Balboa, which is actually right. low key good. Um, but I, I think that one being low key good was even a matter of expectations. In that, I expected absolutely nothing from that movie. Like, I had zero expectations for Rocky Balboa because of how bad Rocky V was. And it was actually pretty okay. Like, it, it was kind of cool. Um, but, it, but, I mean, but it was kind of a nothing movie in terms of cultural significance. It oh, yeah, it was, just, was very it was much very a nothing clearly movie. like, ah, we're just going to make something that's a money grab. Dude, right. It didn't and, come out at Christmas. It wasn't like this big, this big hyped-up thing. It just kind of happened, you know? Yeah. So they, they did successfully breathe life into the franchise with a fresh storyline, fresh face, good performances. This wasn't a great movie to end with, but like you said at the beginning, like there's we we only have two options and one is it changed my life and the other is it deserves to be flushed down the toilet. Yeah. And it falls firmly in like it's lukewarm leftovers. Dude, right. It's man. just kinda eh. Right. And man, I, I just think culturally we need to refine that gear. You know, we need to be okay with something being like neither life changing nor miserable. You know, it, it can it can be somewhere in between. And I, I wonder if it's a f- considering that's most of life, actually. Dude, right. And and this this kind of dovetails nicely, I think, with the book that you're writing, vis a vis expectations and vis a vis just how we talk about things, because you know, social media I think has created this environment where like you know, if the meal isn't amazing, we're not photographing it. We're not talking about it. So like, if it goes on social media, it's just like this transcendent experience, or we want people to think that it was. Um, whereas, yeah, mo- most of the time, you know, the game that you've, that you've bought a ticket to, or the movie that you've decided to like go and watch on Thanksgiving, it's not transcendent. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's just two hours, I- you know? I've watched hundreds of professional sports games in my life, live, and then, you know, hundreds and hundreds more on TV, and almost none of them are memorable. Dude, right. Yeah. But, but that doesn't have anything to do with enjoying the experience. Dude, it's funny, know? man. I'm so glad you mentioned that, because as I look back on, like, all the games that I've watched in my life, almost none of them are memorable, but the ones that are memorable are memorable because of some sort of outside thing that happened. Like I remember one time, I, so I used to go to one Colts game every year with my dad. Um, my pops would shell out for like one, you know, one pair of Colts tickets every year. Sometimes it was preseason. Sometimes we'd, we'd get lucky and we'd catch a, a regular season game. But I remember one time they played, they played the Raiders at the Hoosier Dome and it was right toward the end of Jerry Rice's career when he was with the Raiders. And mm-hmm. um, we had gone down low to watch warmups and there were these like kind of drunk hillbilly Indiana white dudes who apparently had like been at a bar with Jerry Rice the night before. And Jerry had let them like try on his Super Bowl rings. And it was this great moment between these like, um, yeah, just quintessential central <laughs> Indiana drunk dudes, 
you know, screaming at Jerry, like, hey, like basically, hey, do you remember us from last night? Do you remember when we we tried your ring on? And of course, Jerry Rice was like 100 percent dialed in on the game. But it's it's little <laughs> little things like that. I remember one time we uh, we saw the Colts play the Patriots at the Hoosier Dome. And again, this was like early late 80s, early 90s when, you know, fan player interactions were different. But um, we were down right by that rail watching warm ups and um one of the Patriots players like turned around and tossed like tossed a football up at me and like played catch for a couple of minutes with me in the stands and I just thought, man, this is the greatest thing in the world. You know, so I couldn't tell you the scores of any of those games, but um right. little experiences with pops and the weird fans and you know, just all that stuff I think is what gets kind of well, cemented. And that's the thing is like the, a sports game is not a memorable thing. Right. There are like snapshots that are, yeah, you know, so sure. I, I remember moments from games. You know, I remember the one foul ball I caught at a twins game. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, you know, those kinds of things, you know, the one time we were screaming at somebody from the left field bleachers and got him to turn around and wave at us. That <laughs> yeah, kind of exactly, man. It, yep. But but like you said, like I couldn't tell you who was pitching those days. Right. I couldn't tell you the score. I can tell you the Twins probably lost because it was at a time when they did that frequently. most of the time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but just just not a lot. Those those experiences are not supposed to be permanently life changing things. Nor is Creed too. Yeah, it's just supposed to be really fun for two hours, or at least like moderately fun for two hours. Dude, moderately fun, escapist, and I'll tell you, Creed two did deliver on that level. Like it was totally something to do. Um, and yeah, if I had squeezed it into an already busy day, or if I felt like full of expectation, I may have been like legitimately pissed that it wasn't good. But but yeah, I, I was. Not at all pissed. I, I just felt like, huh, this was this was not as good as it could have been. And you know, it's it's funny. Like now that I'm a dad, I think I I want the games that I take my kids to to be more transcendent than I expected them to be as a kid. Because as a dad, you're like you're shelling out all that money and you pile the kids into the car and you're like, I want them to feel the buzz like walking into the stadium that I felt when I was a kid. But like, you can't create it. You know, you can't. You can't make that thing happen. And I, I think the best experience I've ever had at a football game with Maxim, my younger son. So we used to live in Michigan. This was right before we moved south. And there was a college football program in Michigan. Uh, they're in the MAC, Eastern Michigan. And at the time, they had like, they had won like two games in the previous decade. Like they'd had a bunch of O for seasons and they were terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but they would advertise on the radio a whole bunch and their tickets were like, they were literally giving the tickets away. And there was one Saturday where I woke up and it was like 55 and sunny. And I just threw Maxim in the car and we drove to Eastern Michigan with my dad. And there were like four people in the stands and they basically let us in for free. They let us sit on the front row. They gave us like a, a Jimmy John sandwich and they seemed just like thrilled that we were there. And so Maxim basically had like, the Northern Illinois mascot to himself and pops and I could listen close enough to hear like what the coaches were saying to the players on the sidelines. And it was an amazing experience watching this like monumentally crappy team, but which tip of the cap to Eastern Michigan, they've been bowl eligible the last two years. So uh, they have turned it around, but, um, but yeah, that was one of our best sports experiences and it just kind of fell in our laps. When I, and I think trying to create memories for your kids is it's much more like, it's much more shotgun method than sniper method. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, in terms of like, you just got to try a bunch of stuff. Yeah, because yeah. my my kids bring up the most random things that were meaningful to them. Yep. Or the random part of something, yep. you know, that that meant nothing to me. Yeah. And, and you know, sports are the same way where you want them to have a transcendent experience and like see a no-hitter or see a guy rush for 250 yards or see a, <laughs> yeah. you know a field goal to win it with no time on the clock. And in the end, it's like a, it's like a 24 to seven game right. and it's slogged through the mud. And what they remember is, yeah, the one guy who tossed him a football or yeah. the, you know, the coach who high fived him on the way by or whatever, Yep, which is just as valuable. Yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah, you're right. That's a good word. You know, the, the shotgun approach more than the, the sniper approach. I think that, uh, you know, that's, that's a great one for sure. Um, but Piper, speaking of uh, transcendent sporting experiences, our very own Mike Conley Jr. of the Memphis Grizzlies 
um, recently had um, what what was the record that he broke? It was most assists in a court. He had like ten assists in like ten minutes of basketball the other night um, against the Clippers, and this guy is like. Quietly having one of the best seasons of uh, he well he is having the best season of his career. Um, he's playing great basketball and uh, and you wanted to talk about him. So what do you want to say about Mike Conley Jr.? So, so I was watching the Timberwolves play mm-hmm. the Grizzlies a few a few games ago, and the Grizzlies are you know somehow some way they keep going with a very grit and grind yeah. style. Yeah, you know just counter every NBA culture. Yep. They slow it down. They beat people up. Mike Conley is unbelievable. Yeah, he's really good. I don't think he's. I don't think he's. Has he made an All Star game? I don't, I don't think, think he, has, he has. Which is more a function of like, you know, who else is making the All Star game ahead of him? You yeah, know? I mean, when you play in a conference with Chris Paul and Steph Curry and James Harden yeah. and Kevin, you know, whoever yeah. else, all the guards, yeah. you, you, it's very hard. But just watching him play, the thing that the thing that he made me think of was like watching Emmett Smith play running back. Yeah. Because Emmett Smith was not fast. He wasn't overpowering. Yep. He was a great athlete, but it was it was the kind of athlete where you have to you have to pay real close attention to see where it shows up in terms of like timing and agility. Yep. And the way that he uses his brakes instead of his acceleration. Yep. And Conley's never moving fast. And he's getting by people, and he's got this ridiculous little floater game, which is, you know, he's a good shooter. He's a good finisher around the rim, but he just does some weird, unorthodox stuff. And I don't know, I just, I was blown away because it was sort of the first time I'd watched him play in a long time for an extended period of time. Yeah. And just, and thought, this, (laughs) this man is a wizard. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really impressive. And I think if you're, if you're a fan of a program like the Grizzlies, like that's that's what you go to the games for. You know what I mean? You go to the games because you can occasionally see a transcendent performance out of one of your guys and it helps if it helps if you like the guy. Um and, and this is especially true in the NBA now, where like really there are only like three or four teams who realistically can even think about like winning the title from year to year. So, you know, there's all these other cities with NBA teams and you gotta have a reason to go watch, right? Like you gotta have a guy or two on your team that you enjoy watching and um, you know, you can bring your kids out to watch them. And and yeah, like we said, hope to have that um, transcendent experience where the guy has a, you know, really dials it in and has a great night or whatever. Um, and I, I think for me, like that's, that's more how I watch the NBA. And I know you watch cause of the Timberwolves and you're a, you're a fan, but you're a fan of the game as well. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, for me, I really don't have a team per se that I care that much about, but I, I have individual guys that I like watching. When, and Conley, I think, so he came to mind especially because I was trying to think of other, any other player in the NBA who is less appreciated compared to how good they are. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And the, I, I wonder why. The only other one who comes to mind is maybe like Paul Millsap, but I think he's sort of on the backside of his career. Yeah. And he kind of earned the title of underrated for a while. Yeah. You know, where it was, it was, uh, he's the most underrated player in the NBA. And once you're the most underrated, well, you're, you're kind of properly rated. Yeah. Exactly. And so Conley is just, I mean, it's hard to come up with like six or seven point guards who are better than he is. Yeah, exactly. Dude, so this begs the question why haven't, why hasn't one of those like super teams made a run at Conley? You know, like why hasn't he been a guy that, um, you know, that's been sort of that in demand, uh, I guess. He And he's just been kind of mired in this Memphis situation where the team is perennially around 500 and not interesting. And, and you know, he's just kind of stuck there. You know what I mean? I, I think it's for a couple of reasons. One is it's sort of a heyday for point guards in the NBA right now and has been for a couple of years yeah. where th- there's only one or two teams that have bad point guards. Yeah, that's true. You know, most teams have... What most teams have, it's hard to say most teams have above average point guards because that sort of breaks the idea of average. But uh, they have point guards that would have been considered above average 10 years ago. Yeah. And then the other thing is, just in terms of what's valued in the NBA, three-point shooting and wing play. Yeah. And so Memphis, Memphis's two best players are probably the two most undervalued positions in the NBA, and that's point guard and center. Yeah. 
And and yet, I mean, they make it work. They're still competitive. I think they were in the top two or three in the West as of you know the past week. Right. And uh, but he just that's the other thing is you look at it and you're like, I mean, if you put him on the Timberwolves instead of Jeff T, mm-hmm. I they're a playoff team. Yeah, that's true. As as currently construed, you know, that's he true. he takes over the Jimmy Butler role of star. Yeah. He's a level head. He's a great teammate. Right. His young teammates would play better because of him. He makes everybody better. Yeah. And he he knows exactly how much to to kind of in you know impose himself on the game in terms of scoring and forcing forcing the game. You know, if you if you put him on Denver, same thing. Because yeah. a bunch a bunch of young talented guys with no real good point guard play. Yeah. Um. At, you know, just it, it, it's kind of the same thing across. Kind of across the NBA, you look at this. You're like, they, he would make at least twenty out of the thirty teams better right off the bat if you just swap point guards. Yeah, that's true. And and he and he's not. And I think the only reason that doesn't happen is because he's paid a lot of money. Yeah, that's true, man. And and also Memphis has they've like not fully committed to the the tanking rebuild model that a lot of teams have. So um, I'm afraid Conley but is just as- going to kind of be mired there for a while. So here's the thing. I tanking tanking is is a way yeah. to win a title. Yeah. And it, like if if you if you're playing the zero sum game of you either win a title or you fail, yeah. then tanking makes sense. Yeah. If you're in a city like Memphis yeah. where you go we we don't have the TV money uh-huh. to to kind of be flush we're not going to attract free agents based on anything the market has to offer. So that leaves us the option of tanking and really hoping we get great draft picks yeah. or just persistently being competitive. Yeah. yeah. I think they've made the right choice. They, they've kind of done the, what Indiana has done, yeah. where they never want to fully tank. They want to be around 500 or better every year. Yeah. And maybe you figure, and, like, if we can get to the tournament and we stay healthy and the other teams have some injuries, we, we've got a puncher's chance, you know? Um, yeah, and I think I think they've just looked at it and been like, we. It's it's the breaks of the game to win a championship in some ways, or it's it's a super team era. Well, we're yeah. never going to be a super team. So, but but the the it's not that the only other alternative is win twenty two games and try to get a top five pick. Yeah. And so they're persistently what forty to forty nine wins. Yep. Yep. And just slugging away. Yeah. And dude, slugging away, fans, drawing decently, you know. Yeah. Um, but they wouldn't draw decently if they were like, guess what? We're trading away uh, Marcus All and Mike Conley for a bunch of first round picks. So Jaron Jackson is going to be the star of our team. Yeah. They, they'd have 4,000 fans there every game right. for about three years. Dude, you're right. It would, be a, it would be a tough hang. I mean, it'd be a tough slog for a while. Um, which, which really begs the question, Piper, and this is fascinating to me. Like, and and I don't know the answer to this. And if I was a GM, I wouldn't. I don't know that I would know how to handle this. Is it a zero sum game? Because I think from the fans' perspective, and in just the narratives that we've grown up with, you know, the narrative is always like a new guy signs with a team, whether it's a coach or a GM or whatever. And the narrative is always, well, I'm here to win a title. And it's like, well, yeah, at some level, of course you are. You know, you're here to win a title. You're here to win every game, but. In a very real way, if you're a GM, like you're trying not to get fired. And if continuing to win and put a good product on the floor with regard to the limitations that you have in your market, like if that if that gets you not fired, then at some level aren't you doing a good job? You know? Like I, I don't know. And and I guess in the media, you have to say that it's a zero-sum game and you have to say that we're here to win a title. But um, but yeah, if you're continuing to win more than you lose and you're not getting fired... Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the Marvin Lewis model, right? He's been the Bengals head coach for you know 150 years and he's gone 7-9 and nine <laughs> or 9-7 and seven every season. Yeah, yeah I think his best, his best year was like 11 wins yeah. and his worst year has been you know, 6-ish, so, 7-ish. But yeah, he's almost always in that two games over to two games under. If you're five. a Marvin Lewis apologist, do you say to yourself, like, he took over this moribund franchise, the Bengals were terrible, and he made them relevant. You know, and, and every year they're pretty relevant. You know, they're always in the wild card conversation. They're not an easy out. Um, you know, Andy Dalton is Andy Dalton. 
Uh, they've got AJ Green, who's a superstar. Like, they're relevant, you know. Um, but at the end of the day, do you, you know, do you, do you go to the mattresses for Marvin Lewis as being a, a great coach? You know, probably not. Um, you know, which, which begs another question that you teased, uh, I think, off the air. Like, is Jim Harbaugh a good coach? Um, you know, kind of looping back around to the Michigan conversation of he's oh, in, in college football, it's absolutely a zero sum game unless you coach at Iowa, dude. Right at a place like Michigan, <clears throat> so, it's a zero sum game. At a place like Iowa, it's not. Kirk Kirk Ferentz just got a five hundred thousand dollar bonus for winning eight games, dude. And I I honestly think Kirk Ferentz is a great coach. Like I think he's a great coach because he gets. Because they win eight games every single year. Dude, every year, single year they win eight win games. 10 or 12. Yeah, occasionally they have their magical like 10 or 12 win season at Iowa. You know, you're not in a recruiting hotbed. You're not in like a destination city. You know, it's Iowa. And yeah. for that guy to have done what he's done there with the kind of consistency with which he's done it, um, I think that makes him a great coach. Now, it is a zero sum game at Michigan. You know, at Michigan, if you haven't like competed for a national championship in four or five years, like you're, you're done. So it, to be fair, Michigan hasn't competed for a national championship since like Charles Woodson was there. Dude, That's true. And the, I mean, it, have they even gotten, have they even sniffed it since then? I don't know that they've sniffed it. You know, I, and that was, I would have was to how look. long ago was that? 20 years? Dude, that was 20 years ago. Yeah. Which to be fair, like as an older person, it doesn't feel like that long ago to me, but it really was, you know, um, that was a long time ago. And I think the, I think the sort of DNA of college football has changed in that I think it's a little harder to recruit to Michigan in 2018 than it was in, in 1998, you know, in that in 1998, you were still close to Bo Schimbeckler. There was still this like ethos of Michigan as this elite program. It was pre like streaming games. It was pre like, there's a game on every day. Like, Michigan was on national TV almost every weekend, and it made them magical in a way that they are not now. You know, same with Nebraska. I mean, Nebraska now is just a a huge school in the middle of a cornfield with a huge stadium, and they have trouble recruiting, and they have trouble winning, you know. Whereas in 1988 or even 1995, like going to Nebraska was a huge deal. That meant that you were you're playing on ABC every weekend and you know, Brent Musburger was calling your games and it was a, it was a huge thing in a way that it's not now. Um, so yeah, it, it'll be interesting to me. The Michigan fan base is just vicious and they were vicious with Harbaugh in the off season. And they kind of like reached detente with him during the season because he was so successful this year. But I think it's going to be brutal for him tomorrow. Yeah, I, and that's the thing is, I think they, so, you know, you, you praised Kirk Ferentz for being a consistent winner at Iowa. Yeah. I grew up in Minnesota. The difference between the University of Iowa and the University of Minnesota is negligible. Yeah, sure. Yep. They're just, there's literally no difference. Right. And in fact, Minnesota ought to have an advantage. Dude, Minnesota's in, in a way cooler city. You know. Yeah, because at least, because at least it's a sort of a major metro area yeah. with, with some cool culture. Granted, it's. I mean, the weather's not really worse. There's, there's nothing worse about Dude, right, it. Right, right. And Minnesota's just a dog of a football team and has been with the exception of, you know, the the Glenn Mason years and like one or two Jerry Kill years where they were like eight or nine win teams. Yeah. So Michigan needs to realize that's them. Yeah. Like they, they, they still identify themselves. They, they're like... They're like the guy who's 27 years old wearing his high school varsity letter jacket. Dude, that's there's a, that's Michigan. There's a ton right of now. truth to that, but that fan base is so. And, and I say this with a great deal of affection because I like Michigan football. Like the fan base is so arrogant. Like they still think of themselves as the top of the top, the elite of the elite. And I mean, I think these programs that have been able to take a dip and then kind of reimagine themselves are the ones that, that are able to adapt and do better. You know, like, look at Miami's not having a great season this year, but, you know, Miami as a program has had, they've had all these peaks and valleys, um, but they do, they do continue to get back up, you know, and I think hiring the guy that they hired was, you know, a good, Mark, was it Mark, Mark Rick Richt? That they yeah, had hiring Mark Richt was a good hire. 
Um, who is who is another guy who persistently was really good at Georgia, but since it's a zero sum game, he got fired. Dude, right? Because he couldn't. He he was like ten and ten and two, won his division in the SEC regularly. Uh, couldn't get past Alabama. You know who else can't get past Alabama? The rest of the country. Yeah, the, so, the entire world for sure. Dude, so he and I mean, I guess I guess he struggled with beating Urban Meyer when he was at Florida. So, I mean, he he couldn't beat the elite of the elite, but persistently really good. Dude, teams. so here's my thing, and I want to get your take on this. Like, if we were if we were football coaches, Piper, and we let's say we had just won like the Mac championship and we just had some magical year at Eastern Michigan and all these division one programs came calling. I think for me, I think the ideal job to have would be one of these non zero sum game programs where you go, you make it better, you win consistently and you become a legend at like an Iowa or a Northwestern or a Syracuse. So I'm a Syracuse fan and we have Dino Babers uh, who I think is a fantastic coach, really creative, really interesting guy, great motivator. He won nine games this year, and conventional wisdom would say that Dino Babers is going to ditch us uh, to go to some, you know, Texas A&M type program. You know, some program with like a little bit more prestige and, and more visibility, like USC, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But USC is a zero-sum game program. Where and right. unless you win ten games every year and you're and in fact it, at this point it might just be a zero program right like it's just it, it it's completely irrelevant yeah. again they're living it's perception they're living though. on on the memory of Matt Leinart congratulations dude exactly which that was dang near fifteen years ago pipe you know I mean yeah. it may have been fifteen years ago <laughs> yes it was when all of your best players from those college teams have are now calling NFL games on television exactly. because they've retired. Right. That tells you how long ago. It Absolutely. Was. Dude, so for me, I think getting one of these zero sum game or non zero sum game type jobs in a in a city or a metro area that you like, um I, I think that would be that would be tip top, man. You know, and and so a guy like Pat Fitzgerald who stayed at Northwestern or Kirk Ferentz who stayed at Iowa, like Tip of the cap to those guys because at any point they could have bolted for like a bigger, more prestigious job. Um, but I, I think they got a pretty good thing going, and that's the kind of thing I would want. So the question you ask yourself is: Does that make you sort of less uber competitive? Does it make you less of an alpha dog to say, "I want to stay at Syracuse and win eight or nine games every year and be a legend," rather than like going to? you know, Florida state to try to keep them in the national title discussion every year. No, I mean, I, th- I think it makes you realistic. Yeah. Like you, 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 you let, you have to look around and go, okay, well, yes, there is that level of potential success yeah. along with all the crap that goes with it. Um, which means you probably get, you probably get three years in a major program. And if you haven't, if you haven't sniffed a championship in three years, you're on thin ice. And, yeah. uh, but then you look around and you go, you know, there there are only a hundred and something major conference college football coaching jobs in the world. And if yeah. you get one of those and you have success there, you are one of the elite college coaches. You're one of the elite football coaches in the world. And if it's a place where like Pat Fitzgerald at Northwestern is a great example because he's an alum. Didn't he go there? Yeah, he went there. He was a great linebacker yeah. in the early so he was a great, 90s. He was a middle was linebacker. For, him. Yeah. for some reason, I froze in, in, for a second. But yeah, so he played middle linebacker there. He was on like the Darnell Autry team, yep. like the 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 team that just sort of randomly popped up as a as a went to the Rose Bowl uh, conference. Yeah, conference champion. And um, why would he leave? Right. Right. If he if he can win eight to ten games at Northwestern consistently, a school that has significant athletic disadvantages, right? He he is a legend. He's going to be their winningest coach if he keeps this up. He's gonna he's gonna be in their Hall of Fame. He will be loved by a ton of rich alums and have <laughs> a post football career for as long as he wants it. And and if he would step back and look at the grand scheme of things, he would say that was an awesome career. And my like, I wasn't less competitive. I didn't settle for Northwestern. Right. I made something fantastic out of my career. I wish more. I wish more coaches would look at it that way. Yeah. 
you know, like Scott Frost going to Nebraska, he's an alum, so yeah, that made sense. Yeah, totally makes sense. But like, if he had gone to USC, like, why? Yeah, you're winning at at what we at uh, was it Central Florida? Right, you're living in a pretty nice place, living in Central Florida. You'd be yeah. a legend there for the rest of your life. You know, you and and at some point, if you keep winning there, you you sort of you become sort of the Gonzaga of college football, right. where Gonzaga went from mid-major Cinderella to, no, they're just one of the best programs in college basketball. Yeah. Like, he could have done that at Central Florida. And and instead, he's now got to try to do it at Nebraska with all of the, like, the Tom Osborne shadow. Dude, the Osborne shadow, all him. the pressure, like all these fans and alums who still have this like misguided vision of the program as this sort of legendary thing that it's that it's not anymore. Yeah, I just feel I feel really bad for Harbaugh. Like I feel like he's they're gonna want to put his head on a stake tomorrow morning, and and I'm not sure it's fair. Um, you know. That being said, though, what what do you do with a guy like that who has gotten your program close but not quite over the hump? You know, you're not beating the bitter hated rival that you know everyone in your fan base is is obsessed with beating every year. Like Michigan wasn't even. They didn't even sniff being in that game today, really. I mean, they got lucky at the end of the first half. A couple of things went their way, but um, you know, they weren't even they weren't even playing the same game today. Um, so, what do you do with that? Like, do you fire Jim Harbaugh and start at ground zero again, or, or do you like go? Well, this guy's coaching a Super Bowl. He clearly can do this. Do we give him more time? I just don't even know. You know. Well, that's the thing is, like, you, you also look at Harbaugh and you go. He had he had a run of success between was it San Diego University of San Diego yep. Stanford and then the 49ers but it was all with a certain brand of football that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Nobody plays that kind of football. Right. Not at the NFL level, not at the successful college programs like Alabama doesn't even play that kind of football anymore and they were the last one to just sort of ground and pound you right. because they could. Well, and dude, there's a and, there's a scarcity even of of kids to play that kind of football. Like where do you recruit a kid that's been in a three point stance? I mean, all these high school kids and junior high kids, they're all playing in spreads ever since peewee. I mean, there are linemen in this country who have never been in a three point stance and, and you're going to try to teach them a new game. You know, there's a reason why every year Wisconsin puts their entire starting five offensive line into the NFL. Cause they're like, He's a large human who knows how to run block. Yeah, that's we'll right. Just, we'll take him. Dude, if I was an offensive He's, lineman with any kind of size and pro potential, I would go to Wisconsin. And it wouldn't even be close. You know? Like, if you want to play on Sundays, you have to go to a Wisconsin or an Iowa or one of these programs. No, yeah, are, Notre Dame. Notre Dame's another one yeah. where they, they consistently put, like, grunt players <laughs> into the NFL. Dude, but there's only a handful of these programs anymore. You know, right. And and so, yeah, Harbaugh is trying to, you know, you're trying to find guys to do a thing that nobody's doing anymore. And uh, I do think it presents at some level a weird opportunity. But yet, you know, the whole thing hinges on linemen. And if you can't shop for linemen, like if you can't find those guys that you need to do that thing. I mean, it's why Nebraska was so great in the 80s and 90s, because every high school program was running the veer, you know. And, you know, you could find all kinds of huge behemoths who, you know, could bench press 400 pounds and could run block because everybody was doing the well, same stuff. And and when you had a 280-pound guard who was slow, that was okay because the defensive tackles were the same. Like, yeah. there, there wasn't guys running four fives on the defensive line. Yeah. I think mean, the, yeah. the, the game has just shifted. I think Harbaugh needs to end up at a place where expectations are just lower. Yeah. Yeah. You know, where if you win, you're appreciated, but expectations are just lower. Yeah. And yeah. and like he's because Michigan to be the head coach of Michigan, given the expectations, it's like a CEO position. It really is, man. At it's Stanford, huge. he got to just like wear his ugly khakis and teach guys how to block and run. And yeah. And to be fair, his best years at Stanford, I think, were also Andrew Luck years. So, well, yeah. And, it, and at um, Stanford, everybody was super pumped if you won eight games, you know, like the, the bar was, the bar was significantly lower, which is, yeah, not, it's like, it's like Northwestern West, right? It is a great academic school, you know, super elite in that way, which Michigan is too. But, um, yeah, with Michigan, it's just that, you know, you, you have the added baggage and burden of like all these expectations of what people think the program is. And, um, yeah, I would not want to coach at a place like that, man. I think I would want to coach somewhere else. 
Um, so yeah, with these guys like, you know, even like Lane Kiffin coming up at Florida Atlantic, it's like, he's going to be successful there. Um, and then he's going to bolt for some, you know, crappy zero sum game kind of job. And he's going to be right back on the same cycle that he was on before. So yeah, it really is a miserable kind of nomadic existence for these guys. Cause if you're Harbaugh, like, let's say you get fired by Michigan, like, where do you go from here? You know, do you do you do like a, a couple of years sort of sojourn into the NFL as an assistant? Maybe you go work for your brother. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what that looks like, but I would not want the burden of another one of these elite, you know, quote unquote elite programs. I can tell you that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what would make a ton of sense for him is one of these other like big universities that's not a football powerhouse yeah. to throw money at yeah. him. Yeah. You know, like a... I don't know, like Texas Tech, yeah. who who's probably going to fire Cliff Kingsbury, I would think, yeah. because their offense is always great and the team wins five games. Right. Um, or like or Baylor, you yeah. know, one of these schools that that has money, they have boosters, they can pay. Right. But success for them is not measured on championships. It's measured on can we be a lot better than we've been? Yeah. And I think Harbaugh would, would turn those around in a heartbeat. Dude, or Louisville, right? You get to come in yeah. and follow the like Bobby Petrino gong show. Expectations are low. They got a big stadium. They're right in the South. You know, like there, there are a lot of reasons why that could be an attractive job for somebody. But, um, but yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting, man. It's always interesting to see um, where these guys uh, Harbaugh should stay a thousand miles away from the SEC though yeah that's I think that, true. Just, that would be just an awful idea that's true yeah that's very true um, yeah Louisville's in the ACC but still like just yeah. the proximity you know uh, no I was just thinking of other programs that you know like Arkansas you know yeah. would, would be the kind of program where he could have success but I'm like oh wait if you have any success in the SEC you get vacuumed like just sucked into that that conversation of championships instead of being satisfied with eight to 10 wins. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, Piper, I am satisfied with, uh, with the almost hour of good radio that we've done, uh, here on the happy rant sports program. So, uh, always a pleasure, my friend. I enjoy, uh, chopping these things up with you, uh, conversationally, and I hope the fans enjoy it as well. So, uh, we have not done this in a while and it just occurred to me to do it. If you have not gone to, uh, our iTunes page to leave a five-star review, you should do so post-haste. Um, that'll just be the Happy Rant Show page. Uh, we don't have a dedicated page yet for Happy Rant Sports, but uh, go to the Happy Rant page, leave us a five-star, leave us some fawning words. Uh, we're not interested in anything but uh, a five-star, just full disclosure. Um, not interested in constructive feedback at this stage of our lives, but uh, the five-stars do help, so do uh, do go and do that if you feel so moved. And uh until next time, Piper, what's our sign-off? I feel like it should be a, a late 90s or an early 2000s like USC player or Michigan player um, in honor of uh, this. Oh, uh, who, oh, big fat running back for USC, Lindale White. Oh, I loved Lindale White, dude. He was, he was a, my kind of running back for sure. So, yes. uh, Piper, we have wandered to and fro throughout this program in these topics. And until next time, Lindale White. The Happy Rant is brought to you by Resonate Recordings. If you go to ResonateRecordings.com, you can see the full range of services they offer. So if you're considering starting a podcast, they are the ones we recommend going with. Again, go to ResonateRecordings.com to see their prices, to connect with them and ask any questions, and to see what they can do to help you launch, edit, master, and improve your podcast. Again, go to ResonateRecordings.com to see what they can do to help you launch and improve your podcast.
The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.